0: You're listening to All The Best. I'm Mel Chun, filling in for Helena Baroni peters The Tokyo Olympics just ended last week. Thank goodness. Almost every news notification on my phone over the past few weeks has been about someone or other winning some kind of medal for some kind of physical activity. And I just don't care. I really couldn't tell you the name of a single athlete in this last iteration of the Olympics. Or any other Olympics, for that matter or any sport in general. Because here's the thing, not only do I not care about sport, but my brain just seems incapable of processing information about it. I think I always saw sport as this sort of marker of Australian identity that I define myself against right from a young age. And it's like my brain just created this safety fuse against it. So that if I'm ever exposed to information about anything sports related, it just switches off. I'm not exaggerating. I didn't know what AFL stood for until last year, when I had to ask someone. And even now I'm not even sure if I remember it correctly. I couldn't tell you what the teams are, or even what shape the ball is. I used to live with a guy who had some kind of sports-related job. He was lovely, and I'd try to be a good housemate and ask him how his day was, and try to be interested in his work. But I swear every time he talked about it, it was just in one ear and out the other. Then people would ask me what his job was, and I'd just stammer and say some sport thing, I think. Soccer or something. He doesn't play it, he just does something related to it. I don't know. Anyway, this week's stories are about trying to force your brain to do something that it just refuses to do. In our first story, Daniel tries to learn 700 Japanese pictorial characters in nine weeks with varying success.
1: I've lived in Japan for more than two years now. And other than, you know, a global pandemic, it's been great. I've done a lot of things. I've climbed Mount Fuji. I've watched a sumo match. I've taken the bullet train. I've walked across the busiest intersection in the world, in Shibuya. I've done taiko drumming. But the one thing I haven't been able to do is really learn the language. Which is why, on a crisp winter morning, about seven months ago, I was standing outside a university building in Kawasaki, south of Tokyo, ready to sit the JLPT. That's the Japanese language proficiency test. Okay, I'm here now, I'm at the university, Senshu University, Ikuta campus. A lot of people here. Um, Got about half an hour to go before the test. The JLPT is the official Japanese language exam, held just twice a year. I was doing level N3, which involves recognizing more than 3,000 words and 700 pictorial characters. The only problem was, I was totally unqualified to be sitting that exam. So why did I do it? See, here's the thing. If you've lived in a foreign country recently, you'd know that it's quite possible to live your life without really having to speak the language. If you're lucky enough to have a smartphone, which many of us do, there are apps for almost anything you could need. Hell, you can even just point the phone camera at a sign and it will get translated into English in real time for you.
2: When you walk with your dog,
3: be sure to bring a tool to handle the dung.
1: It's weird, it's as if Not speaking the language is the easy way out these days. But you never get to really belong by taking the easy way out. So I've made the effort. I've worked through textbooks at home. I've tried language learning apps. I've organized language exchanges. And my Japanese is okay, I guess. But it's not where I'd want it to be. And that's frustrating. I wished I could speed things up in some way. Or somehow find a cheat code into mastering the language. But maybe fancy technology was not the answer. Maybe I was looking in the wrong place. Maybe instead of looking at the latest gadgets and apps, I needed to go back. Like way back. Because there was a time when people were able to learn huge amounts of information. Roman emperors memorized entire speeches... And indigenous people could categorize thousands of plant and animal species without even writing them down. And they all did it through simple techniques.
2: All indigenous cultures use these methods. All contemporary memory champions use these methods because it's the way the human brain works.
1: That's Lynn Kelly, an author and researcher at La Trobe University, who has written about ancient memorization techniques like memory palaces. A memory palace creates an imagined place in your mind where you can store lots of different types of information.
2: Its association with place and the cells in the brain when it lays down new neural networks, it's called a temporal snapshot. If you're looking at a particular thing and thinking about something else at the same time, they will be linked together.
1: I was going to give it a go. I signed up for the exam and I had nine weeks to prepare. Nine weeks. To hack my way from beginner to intermediate using the techniques of Cicero, St. Thomas Aquinas, and the Pueblo people of North America. The first thing I really needed to do was find out where I was starting from. I needed to do a full mock test, timed in exam conditions, just to check my level. And the results were not pretty. All right. So my totals were 41% for listening, 19% for vocabulary, and 23% for grammar. Okay. So the only place I can go is up. Given that the exam is all multiple choice and you have at least a one in four chance of getting any question correct, this was bad. I was doing worse than chance. I was like a blindfolded monkey throwing darts at the wall and hitting windows. I had my work cut out for me and I needed help. I needed to have a walk through a palace. The idea of a memory palace is simple. You need to envision a place in your mind, a place you know well, your apartment or your office or your childhood home, and then you create a path through that place. In your house, you might start at the front door, walk through the hallway, past the large bookcase, and into the living room. Then continue building a path with 15 or 20 different spots firm in your mind. Then you start placing objects around. So let's say you want to remember a simple shopping list. A dozen eggs, a liter of milk, and five apples. The best way to remember it is to place them along the path, but then make it memorable in some way. The more extreme
2: your memory, uh, violent, vulgar, whatever, the more memorable it becomes, the stories you create, which is why mythology is always hugely exaggerated, extremely beautiful, extremely violent, lots of sex, because that makes the stories memorable and encoded in them is the information.
1: You can be opening your front door, and then suddenly 12 bratty children come out and call you a dickhead and throw eggs at you that hit you on the head and leave your hair all sticky and gross. That's a dozen eggs. After you walk through the door, you see a curvy milk bottle in the shape of a sexy cow winking at you from the top of the bookcase. I told you it was a bit weird, but you probably won't forget the image. Now, a shopping list is easier because you have something tangible, real objects you can place around the palace. But what if you want to remember something less concrete, like a set of names or, let's say, a group of Japanese kanji characters? A little bit of background. Kanji are the pictorial characters used in Japanese. They originally came from Chinese writing and calligraphy. They are made of combinations of pen and brush strokes. Each kanji can represent a word, or part of a word. For example, the word Japan in Japanese is nihon, represented by two characters ni, the character of the sun, and hon, the character for origin. So nihon means the origin of the sun. The character came from China, so Japan was the land where the rising sun from the east came from. So, the origin of the sun, ni Hon. The good thing about kanji is that once you learn a few basic ones, you can start stacking them on top of each other like little Legos, making more complex characters. Those little Legos called radicals, those were going to be really useful to me. They were the things I could place around my memory palace to help me remember the kanji. If the kanji I wanted to remember had the radical for the sun, I could put a sun there. If it also had a tree, I could put the sun coming through a tree. If it also had the radical for fire, I could put the sun coming through the tree and lighting the branches on fire, causing all the squirrels to jump away for safety. My plan was to build different memory palaces all around me. My apartment was an option, And it was actually part of a building called a Leo Palace. I assumed it was named ironically, since the best way I can describe its decor is divorced dad trying to get his life together. But I thought I'd start in a place I knew well. A place I visited every single day. My local 7-Eleven. For anyone who hasn't been to a Japanese 7-Eleven, you are missing out you can get anything from a sandwich to a pair of underwear. You can pay your taxes, you can send a parcel out, you can buy a seasonal craft beer, and they're open 24 hours a day on just about every corner. They're awesome. I built a memory palace along the different aisles, shelves and fridges, all based on the characters built on one radical. The radical for man or person. It's two strokes, shaped like the letter T, squashed to one side. And to make it all memorable, why not make it T for this guy? I know words, I have the best words, I have the but there's no better word than stupid, <laughs> right? There is none, there is none. In my memory palace, I had Donald Trump eating glue, throwing tantrums, taking dumps on the aisle and getting a needle in his eye, which was fun. And definitely memorable, but I gotta be honest, it's way too much effort just for 20 characters. It took me about 2 or 3 hours just to create the Trump Palace. There's just so much information that goes into every step of the palace that it wouldn't help me for an exam that was only a few weeks away. Remember, I had probably 300 kanji to memorize, so that would mean about 15 different memory palaces like this one. So I needed something different. Then I remembered something Lynn Kelly mentioned.
2: Art and music are most uh, hugely used as memory devices. Always story, always song, usually dance and movement too.
1: Music, huh? What if I made the kanji musical? What if I turned the process of writing the character, the strokes of the character and use the sound to create music? What if I grabbed the sound of the character for book and added to it? What if I, say, turned it into a beat, added a kick, a snare, some hi-hats, and a little synth. And now, this could be my musical cue for book. But no, that wasn't going to work either. Again, that involves creating 300 different beats, which would be fun, but not the best use of my time. Was there nothing that could help? No tool of the ancients? Was I doomed to failure? Or well, what if failure was the way forward? What if I could use failure to my advantage, like Ebbinghaus
4: did? Uh, Ebbinghaus was sort of a classic figure in early psychology. He's uh, from the, the German school of psychology, I guess, back in the late 1800s. And uh, he's...
1: that's Glenn Bodner, by the way. He's an associate professor in psychology at Flinders University, and he's talking about the psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus.
4: And uh, he's sort of famous for his research on on forgetting. That's what that's who I think of when I think of Ebbinghaus. I think of his classic forgetting curve and and that research they that did. And he's also very famous for having been his own participant in his research.
1: His research is as clever as it is, well, odd. Picture this. It's Berlin in the 1880s. Here's this young researcher sitting by himself in a lab near the river Spree. And he would create these sets of short nonsense words, 13 of them, things like Tev and Jum.
4: He would sit down, with this T or whatever, and and I guess he would just sit there and repeat in a very sort of quiet voice to himself that first list of 13, and then he would uh, go through the whole list, and then he would uh, repeat this again, and eventually he'd get to a point where he thinks he's got it. He thinks he's mastered this set of 13 nonsense uh, words, and so at that point he would reproduce them.
1: And he did this with multiple sets of nonsense words, many times a day, day after day, for months on end. But the thing is, his goal wasn't to remember the words, but to forget them. He wanted to find out exactly how quickly we forget them. Imagine that, dedicating your life's work to recording failure. Your own failure. So what did Ebbinghaus find? That human beings are spectacularly good at forgetting. If you plot Ebbinghaus' results onto a graph, you get his famous forgetting curve, which shows memory basically falling off a cliff.
4: And essentially the shape of that curve is that you get this rapid decline in memory, or you could think of it as quick forgetting of much of the list.
1: In the process of trying to find out how we forget though, Ebbinghaus was also discovering how we can remember. Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve shows us that when we first encounter a syllable, a word, a kanji character. We have full awareness and we remember it clearly. But as time passes, that awareness fades and we forget it. But if we then bring it to our attention again, it will become clear and we recall it. Only for it to start fading again. But, and this is important, no longer all the way down. We will probably forget it, but not definitely. If we then review it again, by the time it starts fading down, there's a much better chance we will actually remember it. This is the thinking behind space repetition apps. They're a simple study tool you can use, like flashcard software, where you can review characters or vocabulary words or grammar points. The most famous one is Anki. And if you notice one thing throughout my nine weeks of practice, it's my use of Anki. Halfway we done with with Anki, and I'm probably not going to finish the Anki tonight My Anki. 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 It's 1.43 in the morning, and I just finished Anki. After all my experiments with ancient techniques and unusual practices, I'd come back around to using an app to help me with the brain hacking. Anki, by the way, is the Japanese word for memorize. Its kanji consists of two characters. The first one means darkness. And the second one means a record or a chronicle. Keeping a chronicle of the darkness. I can imagine Ebbinghaus feeling like that about his own work. In a way, that's what the process of memorization feels like. But it's all about stepping out of that darkness and into the light. Right, so it is Monday. It's been about a month and a half since... The JLPT and the results are out. So let's check them out. Latest test information, application, test result, and certificate issuance. Okay, let's have a look. Result. Total score 91 out of 180. Result failed. Right. I have to admit, I I wanted that to be a pass. I really did. In the end, I got close. My final score was 52%, and I needed to get 54% to pass. I went from a blind monkey with a dart in my hand to an average human who just needs more time to practice. Even if I had passed... It would have been a bit of a hollow victory anyway. Yes, my Japanese was better, but I still didn't feel like I knew it. Because the truth is, learning a language is not really like memorizing a shopping list. It's a fluid process and it involves many parts of your mind and every sense of your being. I often like to walk around my local neighborhood in the town of Sagamihara at night. When no one's around a hundred years ago this would have been either a rice field or a small village you walk around now and it feels as urban as any part of tokyo and yet at night it can be as quiet as a rural town a hundred years ago before modernity struck i like to look at the signs by the side of the road or in front of the shops when i was studying in earnest when I was doing two or three hours of Anki a day, I sometimes managed to recognize all the kanji on them. But I didn't really know them. I knew their meaning and what they represented, but they weren't part of my vocabulary. To really know words, you have to use them. You have to read them and write them and speak them and hear them in conversation. Because that's how you learn. By going out to bars and cafes, by joining clubs, by meeting people, talking to them, and asking questions and making mistakes. By being part of your community. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the ancient truth that I was looking for all along.
0: That story was produced by Daniel Simo. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Mel Chun, filling in for Helena Baroni peters At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays and fiction. If you have a story to tell, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. In our second story, Gus falls in love on an elevator ride and hopes that his brain won't make him regret it for more than a year.
3: Bro, I love her. Con, I don't know her name, I don't know anything about her actually, and we've only just met. Bro, we're in the same elevator. Con, elevator romance is, by nature, short lived. Very up and down. (laughs) Ha. Pro, I love her. Con, I have no rational reason at all to love her. She just looks vaguely nice and is holding a book and said very politely, basement two please. And I said, I'm going there already. And she said, ah. And smiled. Pro, we're going to the same floor. Con, that floor is the car park. Pro. This is an objectively retellable meat cute, a great couple story that we'll be able to tell to our beautiful, smiling, book reading grandkids. Con. Climate change. Well, I mean, it's just a general con for the future, isn't it? Pro. Women love confident men propositioning them in elevators. Con, I'm not confident. Also, Con, I'm pretty sure that women hate men propositioning them in elevators. Pro, she's looking at me. Con, I was already looking directly at her when she started looking at me, inevitably leaving her to wonder how long I'd been, you know, doing that for. Con, there's absolutely no way I'm going to say anything. Con, I'm going to regret this, irrationally, every day, for at least one calendar year. Con, I'm gonna have to add elevator girl to the ever-expanding list of strange women I met one time in one or another random place and fell in love with for no reason and then didn't talk to. And con, big con, that's a very, very long list.
0: That story was produced by Gus MacDonald. Helen Wolfenden was the supervising producer. All the Best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3 RR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8 on Arunda and Warramongu lands. Our production manager is Danny Stewart, and I'm Mel Chun, the editorial manager. Emma Pham is our social media producer, and our community and events coordinator is Lydia Yosifova. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mel Chun. Thanks for listening.